Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Secretary Walsh joining us now on the labor market report we got a little bit earlier this morning down in Washington, D.C. Secretary Walsh, great to have you with us on the program, sir. I just wanted to start right here with a wage story. We heard from the President of the United States in the past week on this. Just listen in with me about what he had to say. Take a listen. The wages have gone up higher, faster than inflation, uh, and we have generated real economic growth. It doesn't mean these dislocations aren't real. They do affect people's lives. Secretary Walsh, you said wages have gone up higher, faster than inflation. What data is the president looking at, sir? No, I, I, think, I think what the president was really talking about is inflation is reflecting our economy reviving. Uh, and we're seeing this as a worldwide issue. I mean, certainly uh, we, we've seen over the last couple of months uh, wages increasing. We've seen that, that number catching up to inflation. Not quite there yet, uh, but it's heading towards that number. Again, I can't predict what's going to happen over the course of the next six, eight months. Uh, but there's obviously a hope. I, all I can say is that the president laid out a plan in January for an economic recovery. Uh, since that time, 5.6 million people have gone back to the workforce. This month's report, uh, there's a lot of positives in it because it's it's a diversified group of, of businesses that have seen increases in their in their job market, in manufacturing, in business-related issues, uh, in, in, in a yeah. whole bunch of different sectors, in healthcare. It's not just in hospitality. So, I, you know, I, I still think that, that we're moving forward. I didn't hear the president's whole speech yet, so I'm assuming there was some context before and after what he said. Well, I don't think the context is really relevant when you have the statement there for all to hear, for all to see. We listen to the whole news conference ourselves. He said in his words, the way wages are growing faster than inflation. And so I don't see that in the data. I've had some uncomfortable moments in the past with the previous administration when they used to say things that weren't accurate. It's not accurate to say, is it, Secretary Walsh, that wages are rising faster than inflation in America right now? Well, certainly in the, in the last couple of months, and, and I asked that question this morning when I, when I sat down with our economist team, uh, and I was asking them about wages, growth, and inflation. And clearly, in the first part of this year, we saw uh, some wages, some inflation uh, going higher than wage growth. In the last couple of months, we've seen some of that changing. Uh, so hopefully, that trend continues. Let's talk about the president. Sorry, I don't sure. know if that, that's what the president was referring to. The president's statement is the president's statement. It's not backed up by the data on my screen. I've got inflation with a five handle and wage growth year over year. I've got growth of 4.9%. Secretary Walsh, I want to talk about the vaccine mandate as well. You've put that out there in a US Today piece earlier this week. The participation rate is not recovering in America. I want to understand from your perspective how you think that mandate is going to impact potentially that data point. Well, this report today shows that about 3.8 million Americans are directly not coming back uh, to work because of the pandemic. That's, that's their reasoning for not coming back. Uh, and, and what we put out yesterday in, in the emergency temporary standard uh, wasn't a mandate. It, it was a, a company's over 100 people uh, either testing, uh, excuse me, vaccine or testing. Uh, and that's, there's an option here. And that's what we're, we're pushing for here, hopefully to see. Uh, and hopefully when, when this gets put into effect and it goes into full effect by January, uh, we will start to see hopefully some of those 3.8 million 
million people who, who right now are saying they're not coming back because of the because of the pandemic will start to see those folks feel safe enough to come back into the workplace and so it's a it's a it's a it's a vaccine if you don't get vaccinated, you get tested, and then in the workplace, you have to wear a mask. Uh, and, and in your own area, you can take the mask off, but it is about protecting the health and safety of workers. I'll avoid the semantics, and I want to focus on a Goldman Sachs piece you referenced in the US Today, USA Today piece. Secretary Walsh, when you reference Goldman Sachs, can you walk me through the conclusion of that piece that you referenced in that op-ed piece earlier this week? Can you say that one more time? I'm sorry, I missed that. Yeah, you that. referenced the Goldman Sachs piece of research on what would happen with some of the policies if they were introduced for labor supply. Can you walk me through the conclusion of that piece? Well, what we're seeing, what we're seeing is companies that, that have put, put in place uh, vaccine mandates, and this isn't a mandate, but they put them in, we've seen 80 to 90% participation rate of people getting vaccinated, and we're seeing people go back to work. I mean, it, it's happened all across this country in those cases. And again, this is about making sure that we, we, we wanted to do, and what that op-ed was all about, was really trying to explain to people that we want to create safe working environments so people feel safe about going back in. Uh, you know, I would rather be talking about something else today in, in, in this period of time in, in history, but unfortunately, you know, we're still living in, in the midst of, of a pandemic, and, and I think that we can't overlook the fact that people are afraid to go back to work. That's one of the reasons. There's other reasons, childcare and other reasons, but yep. I think today's report is positive, and we just have to continue to build up the momentum off of this report. I want to read out the conclusion of that Goldman Sachs piece that you referenced in this piece earlier this week, the research from Jan Hatzius and his team. Here's the Conclusion. We are therefore not adjusting our employment forecast, but we see some downside risk to employment at the end of 21 and upside risk by the end of 22 as a result of the mandate. Now, I want to understand from your perspective, Secretary Walsh, do you accept that? That as you introduce these I'm policies for supply in the labour market, there is some near-term downside risk, but ultimately, potentially, further down the road, some upside potential? I don't think this has any upside risk. I mean, I think that this is a, this is clearly all uh, a positive that we're doing here. I mean, what we're doing is we're we're asking companies with 100 or more people uh, to have their employees vaccinated, or if they're not vaccinated, tested. Uh, and I think that we I, we can't forget that a year ago this time uh, we had people dying in this country at high numbers. We had high infection rate and high numbers. Since this pandemic began, 750,000 Americans have died. Five million people in this in this world have died because of a pandemic, and I think that you know by by, by putting an emergency temporary standard in place uh, isn't going to impact our economy in a negative manner. If anything, it's going to have a very positive impact on it. So, just to be clear, are we cherry picking the bits we like of the Goldman Sachs research and not the conclusion? I just want to finish there, Secretary Walsh. Is that what we're doing here? No, I wouldn't necessarily. I'm cherry picking anything. I think I'm just stating a fact uh, about about. I think people are cherry picking what we did with the ETS, and I don't think that that we have to look at the whole plan here. It's just like me coming on here today and talking about 531,000 jobs is a good report. Last month I was on it was 193,000 report. If I only focused on the good reports and didn't focus on the bad reports, that's cherry picking. I don't cherry pick. I come straight at it. Hopefully we get more of the same, sir. Thank you for joining us today, Secretary Walsh. Thank you, the Labor Secretary. Thank you, sir. As always. Crude positive, WTI of nine tenths of one percent, seventy nine fifty on WTI. Tom Brent at eighty yeah. eighty seven. WTI year today up sixty four percent. Well, you got a one dollar thirty cent delta between West Texas Intermediate Brent crude, and this is an oil. You know, I'm going to use a word from generations ago, John. It's an oil market bollocked up, where there's a lot of mystery out there. Different meaning over in the UK, maybe. 
Yeah, well, you know, we'll just... We'll I just, won't comment on that now. You carry on. to see. What we're going to do right now is speak to the gentlelady from, from the state of Michigan. She is the Energy Secretary of the United States and has been enjoying the fair climbs of Glasgow, England. Uh, I always say Governor Granholm, Secretary Granholm, welcome to Bloomberg. We're thrilled to speak with you uh, this morning. Let me cut to it, if I may. In Sturgis, Michigan, it is $2.89 a gallon. I guess that's better than in California. What is the Granholm plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Would that I had the magic wand on this. As you know, of course, uh, oil is a global market. It is controlled by a cartel. That cartel is called OPEC. And they made a decision yesterday that they were not going to increase beyond what they were already planning. So, you know, the... The interesting thing is, you know, the Department of Energy has an energy information agency, and that agency does the forecasting of what oil and gas prices are going to be. As of, uh, as of right now, their forecast for the beginning of December is that on average gas prices, gasoline prices, will be about $3.05 at the beginning of December. They're, they will do an adjustment to that forecast in the next week or so, so we'll see if that holds. Mm -hmm. But um, clearly, the Biden administration is very concerned about the price at the pump and certainly the price in people's wallets for natural gas as well for this winter, including, I would say, propane and heating oil, particularly right. in the Northeast. What is the American solution? If they're the bad guys rushing in OPEC at the global price of the market, we all understand the economics. What is the Biden plan to jumpstart energy production across America? Well, Here's the Biden plan. I'm here at Glasgow. The Biden plan is to diversify and to make sure that we move in a direction of clean energy where we're not reliant upon cartels and we're not reliant upon geopolitical adversaries who may be um, creating choke points for our mm -hmm. ability and our people to be able to access energy. So that's obviously a longer term strategy and we will continue. This is why this is called a transition. Right. But if 80 plus dollars a barrel doesn't incentivize um, oil companies mm -hmm. to get off the sidelines, I'm not sure what will. For those of you on radio today and John Farrell, I must note that the former governor of Michigan is wearing East Lansing green today. That's what the color. How reliant <laughs> are we on OPEC Plus? I do wonder and I don't think it's funny. Senator Manchin had this to say earlier this week. Let's take a listen. I say that we can basically do more for ourselves. We've been energy independent for the first time in 67 years. Why can't we do more? Why can't we produce more? We've got plenty of natural gas. My state, beautiful state of West Virginia, has an ocean of natural gas under it. If they just let us build a pipeline, we could get the product to market. And why don't we do more drilling and why don't we do more, basically, production in the United States? I'm not depending on OPEC. I'm not depending on other countries for my energy anymore. We know how to do it. We have the technology. We should be relying on ourselves. The words of the senator, the Democrat, Mr. Manchin there. These are the words of the pioneer CEO. Yeah, Madam Secretary, let's pick up with the words of the pioneer CEO. The president's efforts to restrict drilling on federal land and offshore have been starting to backfire some. His quote, he's got to back off his rhetoric on federal leases going forward. Do you think it's true that we are reliant on OPEC plus in the United States of America? 
we are reliant on a global gas market. I mean, the global gas market, we can't just produce oil for the United States. It is on a global market. And let me just say, the president has not banned oil and gas leases. There are... 23 million acres of public lands, that includes offshore and onshore, where there are leases that, have, that are not being used right now by oil and gas companies. Over 7,000 leases have been issued, and the oil and gas companies are not using them. They're sitting on them. They're stockpiling these leases. Why is that? So we need, you know, if the production issue is not at the foot of the president. There is not a ban on oil and gas leases on federal lands Madam Secretary, you know I'm careful with my words. I didn't say ban, I said restrict. And in addition to that, you're talking about why they won't invest. No we know today. why they won't invest. We, they won't invest because this administration is speaking so highly of this big energy transition that you are actively supporting. So I think it's misleading to say that we are in the United States of America increasingly dependent on OPEC Plus when we've seen oil production in this country increase over the last several decades. Now, there are some options out there for you, as you know, with the SPR. With the options on the table to address the situation we're in at the moment, the United States of America is in control of its own destiny here. I do wonder if the SPR is an option for you to address what's happening in the commodity market. The SPR is certainly on the table as a, an option, and the president will have more to say about that. But let us be clear. I mean, just to go back to your other point, I mean, these, the oil and gas companies have leases that there is no slowdown, uh, there is no, uh, whatever the words were that you use, there's no restriction, none, ever, on their ability to use those leases. Over 7,000 of them on public lands right now. So I just don't want to let that stand. It is not the president's doing that is causing the oil and gas companies right now to decide to slow down. Actually, they were slowed down because of COVID, and we're seeing some movement of oil rigs getting back online, but it's, it is curious about why they are not incentivized more at $80 a barrel. Let me just say, and you're right about us moving to uh, clean energy. That is the future, and that is the long-term strategy, and we must do that so that we're not reliant upon fuels that pollute the air that we see that are accelerating climate change. To that point, Secretary Granholm, some people say that the best cure to get to a greener future faster is to allow gas prices to go higher. They are much higher in places like the United Kingdom. Why isn't there a school of thought saying this is just fine. Perhaps people will reduce their reliance on fossil fuels and diversify more quickly. Because real people use fossil fuels and real people's wallets uh, livelihoods are at stake. The president does not want to see the price of fuel hurt and pinch real people. Poor communities have about up to 30% of their monthly income is based upon fuels. It's not right to raise the price of fuels that would actually hurt real people. That is not in the president's plan and he doesn't want to see that. Madam Secretary, when can we expect a decision with the SPR? Is that something you're thinking about imminently? Um, I know that the president is looking at it and he'll have more to say about it. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us this morning, Madam Secretary. Jennifer Granholm on this oil market. The importance of this, pharmaceutical companies are coming up with a pill of various means and types and styles. And in the case of Merck, they're allowing it to go generic immediately. That is the urgency here on COVID-19. And of course, the news today and the key number is 
Pfizer with a pill that they say has 89% efficacy in a clinical trial. To translate, Andrew Pekos of John Hopkins University. Andrew, is this pill like aspirin? Well, it's a lot better than aspirin. Uh, it seems to be incredibly effective at reducing that disease severity linked with COVID uh, infection. And the population they tested um, had to have at least one pre-existing condition that predisposed them to severe COVID. So they were targeting a population that was more likely to have severe disease, yeah. and it worked at amazing percentages in that population. What's the chemistry? Is it mRNA in a pill form, like in the syringe that hurt me so much? I mean, is it the same medicine? No, it's a, it's a very, very different approach. This drug targets um, one of the enzymes of the virus that the virus needs to make its proteins replicate its genome, you know? Yeah. So, so it targets replicating virus, and it really does stop that virus from replicating relatively cool. quickly. And because we're talking biochemistry, we'll turn it over to Lisa Bramowitz. <laughs> well, that's a, I was going to talk about the efficacy of this chemistry because we talked about efficacy rates of 90 to 95% when we first started talking about the vaccines, the mRNA vaccines. Is this going to be a similar story? We're talking 89% now, but there's asterisk, asterisk, and we might see a less rosy future uh, for, such, uh, for such remedies. Well, here, here's the big problem with antiviral treatments is they have to be given early after symptom onset. And in this study, everybody got the drug within five days of symptoms. And there were even better results if you, if you started taking the drug within three days of symptoms. Translate that into the real world, and it becomes a bit more problematic. You have to come up with symptoms. You have to go get a COVID-19 test. You have to get the results from those tests and then go get a prescription. So the implementation of this in the population is going to be a challenge um, if we continue to have delays in terms of getting test results back. Going forward, how much of a game changer is this? Oh, it's a tremendous game changer because right now we have vaccines which give you your first line of protection. And now even if, you're, if you come up with symptoms after vaccination, you'll have this additional pill to take. And, then, and we also have Merck's pill that's also going to become available soon, too, that gives you that extra layer of protection from disease severity. So we really have the tools in place that if used effectively right. can really eliminate severe disease. From how, how, how do you envision the distribution of this? Is it going to be a bottle of Bayer aspirin at, you know, Dwayne Reed, the local pharmacy? Is it going to be by prescription? I mean, how, how are we? Oh, I feel bad today. I need a COVID-19 Pecos pill. What do you yeah. do? So right now, it's really going to be limited to individuals who are probably in a high-risk group and who have COVID-19 positive test. That's what the clinical trials tested. So that's probably what's going to be first approved. But, um, you know, Pfizer itself was talking about using these uh, pills as a prophylaxis, meaning if Tom gets sick, um, Tom's family can maybe get the pill before they show any symptoms to prevent infection. And I think that's where some of these antiviral drugs will really be uh, even greater game changers if they can be shown to work in those levels. Can these, uh, Dr. Pakosh, can these antivirals bring us back to a time that feels more familiar pre-2020 where it's not that big of a deal to get COVID? Um, it'll bring us back to a time where we can manage this disease. Um, it'll probably never come back to zero. 
um, it'll probably be a disease that we deal with like influenza, which can cause severe disease, but is controlled because of vaccines and antivirals. And we now have that last piece of the puzzle that's needed to control COVID-19. And that's the effective antivirals and more than one of them. Andrew Peckers, thank you so much. Just exciting news. Just greatly appreciate it with Johns Hopkins this morning. This is a really important conversation. Part of what Lisa and I invented with John Farrell is a bit of laughter and that you got to keep this going about economics, finance, investment with laughter and with lightness. And for thousands and millions of American retirees, and we say good morning to all of you around the world as well, this isn't funny. There are negative real yields. And if I look at Jerome Schneider's track record in short-term paper at PIMCO, where he is world-class, five-year percentile, 88th percentile, which is all you need to know, the numbers have gone down. Jerome Schneider joins us now to speak to retirees worldwide. Jerome, this is grim. Is there a social urgency to push rates higher and push short-term rates like CDs higher? Yeah, good morning to you both. Uh, there probably is some pressure building. And then I think really what you think about is the punishing effects of the zero yields we've seen here in the United States for the past year plus, combined with the growing inflationary expectations. It has been a giant erosion of purchasing power. And I think that's become front and center in, some, in terms of the dialogue of not only how corporate treasurers think about it, i.e. how they spend their capital and, on CapEx and manufacturing goods and things like that, but also what the savers ultimately are going to be doing, which is saving now for you know, purchasing power later. And that has been obviously eroded. Uh, what I think is important also, though, is to put it in context. Right. And I, I think that the context here is important. Everybody gets really focused on the big data, the big headlines of where inflation is going. CPI has clearly been higher. And, and that's been uh, mostly done because of supply, supply constraints, et cetera. Right. But in the medium term and longer term, what we really need to be focused on is, are those inflationary expectations, are those higher inflationary expectations going to be embedded in the psychology? And it's too early to tell, but that's really what is going to be moving and inciting the Fed to move into action to a larger degree rather than to a lesser degree. With so un undoubtedly, you're going to see rates move higher over the course of perhaps late 2022 and into 2023. But that's going to be good for savers. But how right. far they go is really the question at hand. Lisa wants to dive in here because this is her wheelhouse. But I want to ask one more selfish question. And that is, from your purview, and trust me, folks, Jerome Schneider's on a ginormous aircraft carrier at sea with billions in short-term paper. Are you seeing yield hoggishness right now? From where you sit looking out duration, are there yield hogs? Well, I think that there's people who really get scared about how the effects of having too much cash sitting at zero for a while. And so people became very agnostic in terms of the risks at hand. And, and unfortunately, we saw that come into play over the past two weeks as short-term interest rates moved unabashedly higher, um, really as markets became more concerned with hawkish rhetoric, et cetera. Um, and initially, I'm a name for the Bank of England, as you know, and then Australia, then Canada, and obviously in the U.S. is more tempered. But 
I would say that that is a situation whereby people have been probably less vigilant in terms of how they're thinking about risk, both credit and interest rate risk, specifically in the short end. And more importantly, the, the focus and the need to adapt to how to think about the gradual trend toward higher rates. And, and, that's, and that's really the focus of how to play a little more defense, how to be a little bit more conservative, perhaps give up a few basis points today for the benefit of having a little bit more upside in, in terms of how your cash performs tomorrow and over the course of the next two years. That's really what it's about. And so from the short-term market perspective, people were taking uh, a rather blinded view in terms of where the risks were. And I think the past two weeks have really opened their eyes to that. Jerome, it's wonderful to have you for many reasons. You have a bird's eye view on the institutional side of things, managing money for retirees, trying to support themselves in a negative yielding world, at least on a real basis. And then on the flip side, you see people parking their money in savings trying to find safety to then take that money and use it for something when we return to some kind of normal. What do you see in terms of people taking that money out of short-term funds and putting it back into the economy the way that we expected to happen with a savings glut beginning to normalize? Uh, quite honestly, it's going to be a, a bit of a longer road. You have uh, obviously the, uh, the the Federal Reserve and other central banks who create these giant tidal waves of liquidity to you know really really drench parched soils from last year or so. And I think really what that does that creates effects. And the, one of the effects that we have to be mindful of uh, is, is that there will be sort of this this uh, tempest of volatility, simpler, similar to what we saw over the past week or two. Um, and, and we don't want to downplay that. It was actually pretty substantive, even though it was very confined to short-term interest rates, but that will result in temperamental tinkering from these central banks. Ultimately, what it means is that investors are going to move from a psychology of playing, you know, playing defense from, from situations by the macro economy to more one about thinking about liquidity management in a proactive sense, because there is going to be more volatility in the market. And this isn't just a situation over the next few weeks or months as the Fed gets more clarity in terms of how that reaction function goes. But it's actually something more structural that's going yeah. to be been more embedded into the psychology of investors over the course of the next three, five, seven, ten years that a lot of the a lot of the volatility that was removed to the market from the responses from the global financial crisis are, are actually now going the other way. And so as we get into this more new neutral based economy, it's an age of transformation where we specifically have to think about how to manage that volatility. This is actually the time when these short term strategies come more into play, not necessarily as a cash management mechanism, but to embrace the higher yields that we're going to see over a longer period of time, number one. And number two is a volatility management tool, Lisa. And I think that's really what becomes part part of the dialogue and the psychology for investors, specifically those savers sitting on the sidelines. This is huge, because when you talk about temporary tinkering, we talk about the temper tantrum uh, that, that that we saw certainly in the short end of world rates. I mean, we saw this in the from the Bank of England, we saw this from uh, the, the, the ECB, and uh, the, the US rates followed. How do you then actively manage this to capture the benefit? How do you work around this as an active manager? Well, number one, you have to have degrees of freedom. Simply going and buying certificates of deposit and commercial paper, that's one avenue, and, and it's been sort of out there for obviously about five decades, specifically when money market funds came. However, it, it's, it's, it's grossly mispriced, and frankly, one of the things we learned in numerous crises, but specifically highlighted with COVID, is that some of those markets actually become increasingly illiquid, mm-hmm. as we've seen, and, and regulatory responses are going to be well, willing to cover that. 
But I think the more important thing here is having degrees right. of freedom, having the ability to have flexibility. And, and I think when you get into those situations, it's not yeah. simply about defense. It's, a, it's about well, more about having opportunities. Okay, I, I got to ask the question that your general counsel doesn't want me to ask, but here we go. Do we risk price down yields up a break the buck on money market funds? No. And in fact, I think that's one of the things that we've been pretty vocal here at PIMCO about. Yes. Money market funds need to be fairly bifurcated. Government money market funds, those that invest in U.S. treasuries, those are those are remain steadfast and fine. And we actually think that's a foundation of the economy. That's how we manage our liquidity and and cash here at PIMCO as a foundation using U.S. treasuries and U.S. treasury backed repo. But I think when you get into other areas that are more credit sensitive, such as prime money market funds, you should be going to those with a wide open eye with regard to the, the focal point of they're highly concentrated in financial risk, et cetera. And so that is where we sort of preach diversification. Prime money market funds don't necessarily provide that diversification. So we just want to be more proactive in that regard. Jerome sent me a note once. He said, Tom, you're an idiot to go into the triple leveraged all cash fund. (laughs) He said, you are just an absolute jackass. And what did you say? I said, we'll have you on the show. Jerome (laughs) Jerome Schneider, thank you so much with PIMCO. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.